Hello and welcome to Speak Female, a podcast for ambitious and career-driven women. Speak Female means changing the meaning around words and phrases that are associated with women, or in fact have a negative association. It is about how we can and will edit the narrative to build a more understanding, diverse and balanced world and of course workplace. In every other episode, I interview an inspirational individual around an array of subjects, from financial independence, being an entrepreneur and women in tech, to transitioning career, female empowerment and mental health. Hello and welcome back to Speak Female. Today I'm joined by Eileen Brown, who was the first female deck officer at Shell Tankers. She was made redundant at 21 and she went from working on the ships to working in the world of IT. Eileen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Nice to uh, talk to you. Fab. So at the age of 13, you knew you wanted to go and work at sea. Tell us, what, what was that inspiration behind that? Well, it's, uh, it's quite a weird story. Uh, my school, along with lots of other schools back then, had um, access to uh, an educational cruises Um and I remember being in assembly and they announced, the teacher announced that there was an opportunity for us to go on a cruise around the Greek islands. And so uh, my parents actually let me go on this cruise. I flew to Athens with about 10 people from my school. We were in dormitories on a, a very old ship, uh, a warship um, that was converted into a troop carrier called the SS Uganda. And uh, 900 kids and 200 stressed teachers um, were on the ship for uh, it probably was a week. And I remember absolutely definitively my epiphany for deciding I was going to go to sea. Um, we had a bridge trip. And the officer of the watch, who, if I think back, was probably only a, a deck cadet, was showing us around the bridge. This is a steering wheel. This is the radar. Let me take you into the chart room so we can have a look at the charts. And he got a pair of dividers out and he, he spread the dividers and said, this is one day. In three days, we will be here walking the dividers across the chart. And a light came on on my brain and I said, is that all you do? And he said, <laughs> yes. And I thought, right, that's it, free holidays, I'm going to see. And that was it, really. That one person who was probably a very junior uh, member of staff in uh, P&O anyway, absolutely shaped my mind. And I made sure that all my O-levels were um, the right type of O-level so that I could go to see. I investigated whether any companies were hiring women because back in the 1970s, the Sex Discrimination Act was very new. That came out in about, the Equal Pay Act came out in about 1974. And I wrote to about four big companies, BP, Shell, Esso and Texaco, because I reasoned that larger companies would be more uh, reasonable about taking girls and I got a job at Shell Tankers and I was the first female deck cadet they ever hired and consequently the first female officer. Amazing. And so, so tell me, what was that experience like? I was absolutely petrified. Um, I flew to La Havre and uh, my parents were so concerned about me missing the flight from Gatwick, which was at 4 p.m. from Gatwick to La Havre, that they put me on the last train from Darlington to which got into King's Cross Station at about half past one in the morning and I sat on King's Cross Station all night on my own 
on my suitcase. And if I think back now, I was 16, wow. I was, no, seven, just 17. And then when the ticket office opened, I went to the ticket office to pick up my paper flight ticket. And I was in Gatwick by about half past nine, waiting for my 4 p.m. flight. And then I had to stay in a hotel for five days because the ship was at anchor because there was no um, berth for it. And there was no room service. So I would starve to death in five days. So I had to force myself to go down to a breakfast, lunch and dinner entirely on my own in a restaurant entirely on my own. And I've never ordered room service since because I think at 17, if you've got the courage to actually go there and eat, then you can do anything. And when I got on board the ship, I was petrified. I felt like I'd blagged my way into the job. I had no idea what was going on. And fortunately, the chief officer was very much in uh, looking after me, my pastoral care, and he guided me into this is what it was like. My cabin was close to the chief petty officer. That was like a catering manager. Um, he made sure that uh, nobody came into my cabin and that my pastoral care was okay. Great, great. That's fantastic. I could literally sit and listen to this story all day. Um, something else that, that you mentioned to me in our kind of pre-conversation was that at 21 you were made redundant and actually it's something that our listeners who are listening now can probably relate to so can you take us through that experience and how you kept resilient well I spent four years at sea doing an apprenticeship two years at uh, two weeks at college learning how to put a life jacket on and which end was the front which end was the back how to use a, um, a fire extinguisher that sort of thing then nine months at sea then six months at college uh, learning chart work and navigation and electronics and that sort of thing and then 15 months at sea and another six months at college where I did my certificate and became third officer and I had loads and loads of challenges when I was actually at sea which I'm sure you'll ask me about later and some hairy moments and some terrifying moments as well but when I completed my officer's certificate and became a third officer uh, in charge of the bridge on my own and holding the watch um, it was the OPEC oil crisis and shell tankers laid up half of their fleet up in Scotland so they had no requirement for their intake of deck officers or engineers so everybody was made redundant and when you think about this was the only job that I'd ever wanted to do from I was 13 and I'd done it for four years and then at 21 I was made redundant I honestly felt that my life was over I thought I'm just going to bum around till I'm 65 because I've done the best thing that I could ever do in my life. What on earth am I going to do now? <laughs> and uh, I wallowed in self-pity and desperation for about three months, picked myself up, went and got a job in an off-license, thought, OK, my job is finished now. And then I saw an advert in the Daily Telegraph or one of the broadsheets um, to become a filing clerk in... Canadian Pacific which was there was no computers back then or very very primitive computers and it was putting pieces of paper in files on personnel um, who were at sea at CP so I joined as a very lowly filing clerk and as soon as I worked for CP I harassed them for nine months to say I was wasted as a filing clerk and I should go back to sea as an officer and eventually they completely relented and I spent another couple of years as an, a deck officer in Canadian Pacific CP ships 
until I decided to leave to get married. This was the 80s. And if the company had discovered that I was dating somebody who was already at sea as well, the company would have made sure that we never saw each other again. So we both gave up the sea for each other. And we'd been married 33 years. So it was a very hard decision for both of us, but it was the right decision. Oh, fantastic. And you mentioned um, just then about kind of hairy moments that you had perhaps at the early stage of your career. Could you talk us through what they were? Well, when I was an apprentice, I was under the care of the captain of the ship, the master and the chief officer and all the senior officers. And the captain in particular was very concerned that some of the other apprentices might get a bit fresh with me and um, start sleeping with me. And at 17, he had the pastoral duty and he'd warned all the other apprentices not to go near me. So I was ostracised right from the start as soon as I got on my very first ship and I didn't understand why. He also restricted the amount of beer that I could drink just in case I got drunk and went to bed with any of them. <laughs> and he used to put um, he used to use his master key, which had access to all the rooms to actually come into my cabin at night to check that I was sleeping alone. Um which was absolutely terrifying. And because it was the captain, I had nobody to report it to. Gosh. I didn't tell anybody. Um, but I told another one of the apprentices who I was quite friendly with. And he told me to put a tall um, half pint glass on my door handle so that when the captain put the key in and turned the handle, the glass fell off and shattered. So I was woken up by the fact he was coming into my room. It was uh, not pleasant. I remember another ship the radio officer, who's a senior officer, he, but they also have a master key to get into any cabin. There, he used to come into my cabin. And I remember one night he particularly got drunk and was trying to get into bed with me, but I was still only an apprentice. And one of the things about apprentices is you have to make your own bed. And there's a trick that I learned in the Merchant Navy that I still do now. If you've got a flat sheet and you want to make it into a fitted sheet, you're not every fork you're not full corners of it and the corners uh, the knotted corners provide the fitted sheet well as a lazy cadet I used to knot three corners of the bottom sheet and the top sheet and tuck them in so I only had to pull one corner to make the whole <laughs> bed look fabulous and this particular um, vessel was um, it used to roll a lot and it used to roll so much you used to fall out of bed Gosh. and this particular night I'd actually tucked all the four corners in and got into the top like a sleeping bag so when the radio officer tried to get in bed with me I was lying on the sheets and he actually could not get the sheets uncovered but a senior officer there's nothing you can do but issue a few choice words which made him promise that he wouldn't do it again so I I actually had no support but I was very, very stroppy at all times. I remember one officer used to was convinced I was sleeping with another um, officer and he used to alternately phone my cabin and the officer's cabin uh, alternately to make sure that we both got out of bed to answer the phone. And when you answered the phone, uh, the phone went dead. You have to have a phone in your cabin so you can be alerted to go on watch. Uh, that time I did complain to the captain and he changed my phone number. But the trouble is the officer that was phoning me continued to do this. So I was very alone. That's that's an incredible story. And do you think that nowadays there's more in place to protect females that are perhaps in similar environments to you? This was the 1970s. And if you remember back to the brutality, the sexism, the racism, 
that happened by almost, it was almost de facto in the 1970s. Mm. The general attitude of the officers was, you wanted to do this. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Mm. So I learned to be very stroppy, ballsy, um, drinking, smoking, swearing, laddish sort of woman. Yeah. When in actual fact, I'm quite gentle inside. I'm a little bit of an introvert, but I became very brash, very, very aggressive in order to do the job I wanted. Um, The thing that actually got my respect from all the officers wasn't smoking, swearing, uh, staying up later, doing all the laddish things. It was the stripe on my arm. As soon as I got the stripe, the attitude was, oh, she can do it. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And perhaps similarly, some people who are listening now, perhaps who work in more male dominated um, industries, they probably feel that they have to perhaps speak a certain way, be aggressive. Um, and it's, it's really interesting perhaps how since the 70s, perhaps that hasn't really necessarily changed that much. No, I think the, the difference was in the 1970s, sexism was in your face, overt. Mm. Now it's insidious. It's cyber it's online it's very very subtle it's passive aggressive I'd never heard of passive aggressive in the 1970s it was just it was just aggressive mm. and much more insidious I I used to be almost top of the class in at college at nautical college just to absolutely make certain I was as good as or if not better than the male apprentices and at sea whilst I wasn't as physically strong I tried my best to make certain that I was at least equivalent and I used to hate asking for help because their attitude was you wanted the job you do it Um, occasionally I would get help by a buddy but it was brutally hard absolutely brutally hard and I think that shaped the way I felt I thought I got into IT by complete accident I would I'd been on a seven month uh, trip in the Mexican coast I paid off in December with a view to coming home I remember sitting in Amsterdam airport waiting for my connection flight I bought a jumper in Mexico because I'd only taken summer clothes with me and I'd forgotten to put any socks on and my feet were freezing and I turned to the guy next door to me I said is it this cold in England and he said my dear we're in the grip of the worst winter we've ever had where have you been so I just started chatting to him and said oh I'm leaving the sea because I'm getting married I'm looking for a shore-based job maybe in Felixstowe port on containers da 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 and he said come and talk to me and he ran a container leasing company and he put me on to somebody that got me my second job, which was in a shipping company, a container shipping company where I ran a shipping line. And I eventually went into IT at the shipping line and from then on to uh, IT trainer, IT consultant, working at Microsoft and now running my own business just by that one conversation, by being ballsy enough to talk to a stranger because I had no socks on. Wow, the power of networking almost, isn't it? And that's that's fantastic. And look, you've kind of gone on to my next question, really, about stepping stepping away from the ships and stepping into the world of IT. So you made that transition by just speaking to somebody. So talk us through the different roles that you've had within within the IT world. It's really weird because uh, I 
blagged my way into IT. I was working in a shipping company and there was a computer in the corner of the room that nobody looked at. And it was running uh, Lotus 123, which was, if you remember that, it's before Excel. And I was playing with it because every Tuesday we used to get telexes, remember telexes, in from all the shipping agents around the world saying, oh, the ship's been delayed. That means it's going to be delayed to go to the next port. It's all oh, there's bad weather in the Atlantic. It's going to be delayed in New York. And we'd spend all Tuesday with a pen, a pencil and uh, adjusting the ship's schedules. I ran a fleet of container ships, about five or six of them that were on around the world service. And then if a ship was late in the half, it was going to be late in New York, Boston, Savannah, uh, Panama, Australia, which meant that the drivers with the containers had to be told that they were going to be late as well. So I worked out that you could put the changing dates onto a spreadsheet and the dates that were fixed uh, because they were historical didn't change but all the dates in future would change if the ship was one day late this absolutely revolutionized our department my little one spreadsheet with the um with the amended schedule vessel schedules took me probably two minutes to do on scheduling tuesday and i'd sit around for the rest of the day while everybody else rubbed out their pencils and papers and then when they heard about it, they wanted to make a, an AS400 mainframe um, schedule that was going to take three months development time. And I just carried on using my little spreadsheet. Took me longer to walk to the printer than it did to actually amend the dates. And they put me in the IT department entirely for that. Talk about feeling an imposter. Just because wow. I had a play with a spreadsheet, I was moved into IT where we transitioned from a Novell Netware um, backend to Windows NT351 and windows for work groups when i had to teach people how to use a mouse and they back then they were using a mouse on the actual screen yes people did do that wow. um, one of the key things for click and dragging was teaching them how to play solitaire and the amount of people that picked up the mouse and waved it at the screen because previously to that everything was dos based and keyboard based and we forget this now with touch screens and devices mm. But people did used to wave mouse uh, a mouse around in the air and they had no idea how a window worked. It's incredible. Your, your stories are so incredible. You mentioned a couple of times about you kind of felt like you blagged your way and then you mentioned imposter syndrome. I just wanted to ask you about that, actually, because a lot of people who I work with personally and even in my friendship groups as well, we always say, oh, goodness, we feel like an imposter. What, what's been your experience? You've kind of mentioned it anyway, or, but what's been your experience of kind of feeling like an imposter and how have you got over that kind of feeling as well? I think initially pure bravado and blagging got me through feeling like an imposter. Um, and the bravado got me onto a ship and because I had no idea what I was doing and I was learning all the time. Um, and blagging, I think I would now term it as confidence not blagging because I originally said I'd blagged my way into the next job it was the confidence to talk to a stranger and then when I worked at Microsoft which write the software that we're all using I felt like a complete imposter because I felt I'd blagged my way into Microsoft and then I found that everybody in Microsoft feels the same way apart from a few people but Everybody feels imposter syndrome and we're all there working, trying to do the very best that we can. And when we have a wobble, it's just absolutely normal. But confidence is everything. And I carried on blagging 
And I remember one day I was uh, about to do a show. There was about 800 people in the audience and I was uh, reading through my notes, terrified. And one of my colleagues said, I don't know why you've got the notes. He said, you wrote the notes so you know what's on them. Why are you looking at them now? You wrote the notes from what's in your head. You're just using them as a crutch. Go out there and be confident and stand in a confident way. Um, because I was standing in a, a scared way. Um, there's a way you can stand to demonstrate confidence. And there's a way you can stand which shows that you're nervous. And I learned how to stand in a positive, assertive way, bearing in mind that most of the IT people I spoke to were all men. And I felt confident because I was standing in a confident way. And my best tip, if you ever speak in front of a large audience, is do not wear a button-down blouse. Wear a top or a T-shirt that cannot spring open and show your bra in front of 800 people. Did that happen to you? Uh, worse happened to me. I went to the ladies just before uh, an event with 250 people and, and went through the audience uh, right the way down to the front of the stage before we brought the audience in. And one of the show uh, producers mentioned that I had my skirt tucked in my knickers as I'd walked all the way through 250 blokes. <laughs> well, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> it happens to a lot more people. Um, but I'm not ashamed of it. I was terrified, got, uh, smoothing my skirt down for the 20 minutes before I went up on stage. And now, even now, I make absolutely certain that before I stand up on stage, everything is where it should be. Fab, brilliant. So can you give us any little pearls of wisdom from your experience? So there's, you've, you've lived such an extraordinary life. You've got so many amazing stories. What, what pearls of wisdom could you part on to our listeners today? I've got two. Um, one, my career seems to be quite chaotic because I didn't have one structured career. And back in the 70s, people used to work in the same job for 30 years. And I seem to have cannonballed like a pinball machine to all sorts of different careers. And who would have known that even though I had a, um, a GCSE or an O-level back then in computing, I would end up in digital marketing. There's a, a phrase in Alice in Wonderland, all roads lead somewhere if you don't know where you're going. I still don't know where I'm going, but I grab every opportunity and I hardly ever say no to something that could turn out to be exciting. And the other pearl of wisdom is if you believe in yourself, anything is possible. And Having blagged my way through most of my career, I finally believe in myself. I still have wobbles. Everybody has wobbles. But this feeling when you've achieved something that you've believed in is utterly amazing. And if I can give anybody some advice, it's just believe in yourself. You're the only person that's going to believe in yourself. Nobody's going to believe in you until you demonstrate that they can believe in you. But you've got to believe in yourself. Brilliant. Eileen, I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on Speak Female. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for letting me share my life history. Oh, it's been fantastic. If you've enjoyed what we've spoken about today, please feel free to comment, share and like this podcast. I have been joined by Eileen Brown. I'm Lucy Grimwade. This podcast has been edited by Natalia Holly. And remember, ambition isn't a dirty word.